Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Melissa Lee, and this is Fast Money. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, Steve Grasso, and James McDonald. Tonight on Fast, we are tracking the after-hours action. Lyft, Twitter, and Cisco, all three stocks on the move after reporting results. will break down the numbers and bring you the trades. Plus, the chip crunch, a growing number of companies ringing the alarm about a global chip shortage. We'll look at the winners and the losers in the semi-squeeze. And later, pot stocks blazing higher. Is it too late to get in on the cannabis craze? We'll debate that. But we start off with an earnings alert on Lyft. The stock is rallying after hours. We're getting very positive commentary about the future from the company's conference call. Let's get to Deidre Bosa, who is fresh off that call. Deidre. <laughs> That's right, Melissa. And let me bring you the thing that I think was most important, where you really started to see shares move up even further. CFO Brian Roberts, he just says that he expects Q1 to be the last quarter with negative revenue growth in 2021. He also said that they could achieve adjusted EBITDA profitability earlier than expected in the third quarter of this year. Previously, they have said that they were targeting the fourth quarter. So this, you know, really raises the stakes for Uber, which reports tomorrow, because they are as well targeting that adjusted EBITDA profitability. And here you have Lyft delivering a pretty good set of results and getting potentially hitting that metric earlier than expected. Um, otherwise, on the call, a lot more of what we've said over the last few quarters, which are more green shoots, the company continues to aggressively cut costs and get closer to that profitability. Co-founder and CEO Logan Green, he kicked off the call and he said that Lyft is in a stronger position now than any time in its past, which is quite remarkable, considering that revenue is down 44 percent year over year. Um, he also said that they are preparing for stronger demand in the second quarter. And he had this to say about the U.S. recovery. Have a listen. We can't predict the timing or efficacy of vaccine rollouts with certainty. Based on current trends, we believe the U.S. could reach critical immunity levels earlier than many international destinations. Now, if that's true, Melissa, that would benefit Lyft more than Uber, since Uber does have that vast global footprint and it's made a big pivot to food delivery, which is thought to benefit more from lockdowns. We are seeing Lyft shares climb even higher, up more than 9% now. And if, I think it has to do with that profitability timeline, which investors have been so focused on ever since those IPOs. Back to you. Deidre, keep us posted. Deidre Bosa on Lyft, and we are seeing Lyft achieve after-hour session highs up 9.5%. So certainly very positive commentary, specifically about Lyft's business, which uh, is expected to strengthen the second half of the year, Guy, but also for the reopening trade at large. No question about it. And they talked about potentially getting into the delivery business. I know Gene's probably going to talk about that. And Deirdre mentioned the you know, revenue year-over-year decline of about 44%, but sequentially, you probably have about 15% growth. So I've always thought for a while, and it was wrong for a long time, but Lyft was a better company than Uber, and we played Would You Rather a number of times. Well, the stock has actually caught up and maybe even surpassed it in terms of performance. I think you stay the course here, and they've talked about it for a while. I mean, they're the one company, it seems like, that understands their pathway to profitability, and I think you stay with the Lyft trade despite this move to the upside in the after hours. Yeah. Steve Grosso, what did you make of the quarter and the commentary? 
Yeah, so I think this is a reopening trade, but if you look back, the biggest event that happened for Uber and Lyft was the uh, Proposition 22. So if you look back to the election, with this pop after hours, Lyft is up 173% from that time period. So it is overbought, as you could imagine right now. But what's the commentary we heard from Uber? They actually have compensated from the lack of of uh, ride share with food delivery. So if Lyft can get a fraction of that, it can probably move higher still. It is amazing, James, that uh, you can think of, you throw a pandemic at Lyft and it emerges at a stronger position than any time in its past. I guess what doesn't kill you makes you stronger is really applicable in this situation. Right, and imagine if they did what Lyft does with the restaurant deliveries. You know, Uber's got a 125% increase on restaurant deliveries. And, you know, it begs the question for Lyft uh, to be able to extend beyond the ride sharing into additional services, um, a good product, a good service, uh, and a good market climate for it to grow coming out of uh, this pandemic. And obviously, as they said, uh, their future is highly dependent on the vaccine rollout. And no one knows what's going to happen there. Uh, but they've got this pocket of strength in the ride pooling uh, where consumers are willing to share uh, uh, to pay less for their rides and the drivers make more per ride. And so um, should see a lot of explosive upside growth here uh, once this vaccine rollout continues on. Tim, do you think Lyft needs restaurant delivery? I mean, once upon a time, not too long ago, a yeah. lot of people were saying we like Lyft because it's a pure play rideshare right. company. Then the pandemic comes along and it's got to right. be in the food delivery business. The pandemic is going to go away, according to the no. Lyft management, yeah. and business is going to resume. So do they need to have that sort of uh, the, the delivery business. Well, I'm with you in highlighting this point. This was the darling of the two because, in fact, they had a simpler business model. Remember that. And, and so the fact that profitability is coming by, by you know, Q3 possibly. Uh, by the way, one of the big turnarounds for the company was getting rid of Guy Adami as an employee, but we'll save <laughs> that for uh, another time. I, I think you have a case here where, where uh, you know, you, you've got, uh, look, the same plunge and the same uh, you know, devastation to their to their business, uh, to a lot of folks' business. And you know, we mentioned the recovery trade. So, what are the best recovery trades? I, I think to the to the same extent that we saw uh, that overshoot to the downside. I think you can expect a pent up demand overshoot to the upside. I, I don't. You know, I, I think these companies are actually going to get uh, rewarded and should be trading at a premium coming out of this, based upon the business they're going to see uh, in the next three quarters. But but look, I, I I think the commentary on this call was extraordinary. Talking about the company never being stronger, never in a better position, never better run, uh, and the fact that they clearly are looking well past Q1 will be the last quarter of, of negative revenue growth, and Q3 looks profitable. Um, we've wanted to hear this for a long time. And, and yes, it has made them stronger. Moving, moving up the profit, profitability target is just uh, kind of amazing if you think about it. Um, Guy, you know, they, they did do a little bit of a dig uh, in terms of their commentary about vaccines, saying the U.S. could bounce back much faster than some of the international, uh, you know, play, locations. And, and that would seem to be a dig at Uber, which has said, you know what, we're an international 100%. player in rideshare. <laughs> Yeah, don't think that was that. I mean, I'm sure there was there was some intention behind that without question. And if you were moderating a debate like a presidential debate, yeah, I would you would have to give me the opportunity to respond to Tim's dig. And I would say I resemble <laughs> that remark, Tim, number one. And number two, I'm the only Lyft driver in the <laughs> yes. history of the company that has a perfect score in terms of rating. So just so I'm throwing it out there. And I dominated Hoboken <laughs> the day that I was driving around. With that said, I think, you know, the I fact that they're getting into delivery now, I, they probably learned from 
all the mistakes that Uber made along the way. And so I think they'll be better at it than Uber probably is now, which is, I think, one of the tailwinds they're going to have. So, listen, I think the high in July of 2019, if I'm not mistaken, was $68 or so for Lyft. I think we trade up there. Uh, Tim, I'll go back to you. Why do you think we haven't heard this bullish a commentary from others in this sort of, you know, travel sector, transport sector like the airlines to be so specific about when the inflection point was coming and how quickly the, the inflection will be and how it'll gather steam in the second half of the year. I don't know if we've heard that granular commentary from others. Yeah, I, I think they're 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 look they're very in touch with their customer base and through their drivers. Uh, I, I think they have much better read. I, I also think uh, the relative uh, again simplicity of the business. It's it's a complex business. It's a complex algo uh, technology involved, but. But I, I think these these cost savings, uh, these these elements of the business that have gotten tighter uh, are, are things that that make them more confident on a resurgence. And look, I, again, I, I'm not sure anybody's really talking about this. I'm not saying I'm creating a new concept here, but I think we need to focus on on overshooting to the upside on pent up demand much in the way uh, we expected the absolute worst on the way down. I, I think I think companies that are in in the the ultimate tailwind of a recovering economy and a reopening economy um, are going to see extraordinary demand. And they're going to have pricing power. Remember surge pricing? Uh-huh. Um, I think these guys are going to be in position to change their margins. So can we extrapolate that then, Steve Grasso, to the airline industry or to the hotel industry in terms of the recovery happening much faster than expected, pricing power to return, demand to surge? So, so I think the, the main difference uh, that you, the, to the question that you asked him was that there's no quarantine issue when you look at uh, something like a Lyft or an Uber. When you look at the airlines, you have to look at state by state. So if I go to Florida, how long do I have to quarantine when I come home? If you take an Uber or a Lyft, you're just going from point A to point B in the same state. So you don't have to worry about quarantining. Hence, more visibility in the company mm. itself. That's a good point. Let's get more about the Lyft's quarter with Fast Money friend, Gene Munster, founder of Loop Ventures. Gene, good to see you. Um, I'm the Lisa. stock is surging. Is that warranted? Uh, Melissa, as you know, I take a long term view. I appreciate my place here on Fast Money, and I'm going to channel my inner <laughs> trader here. Over the next six months, the stock is likely going higher, and I think Tim summed it up very well is that. Uh, when we have this return to growth, they're growing at 53% in the December quarter before the pandemic, and they're going to grow at, they'll be down about 33%. But as you said, is on the earnings call, the expectation is that we're going to see a bounce back. And I think investors are going to most welcome this bounce back. And the powerful point is that return to revenue growth, along with some of the hard decisions they made around expenses, gets to more leverage. If you back up one year, the stock essentially uh, at the close of today was flat from where it was uh, at, uh, a year ago. And I can see uh, a case where we start to extrapolate to the back half of this year and think about better expense control, that this should clearly go higher. And if I can just quickly finish my thought, I, f- I feel this is going higher. But one piece that we have not discussed today is just what is the long-term uh, game plan for these companies, whether it's Lyft or Uber, the ride sharing, the robo taxi space is going to be different in a few years than what we thought it was going to look like when these both of these companies went public. And I think that that is still 
a long-term unanswered questions uh, for investors. Is Tesla, RoboTaxi, Apple, Waymo, are these ultimately going to be more competitive uh, to their business model? So longer term, there's an existential threat out there. But for, for the shorter term, <laughs> we're going to put our fast money cap back on, Gene. Um, when we emerge from the pandemic, which is a better business model, Uber or Lyft? Lyft is. I think it is. Uh, when we talk about simplification of the model, adding uh, food delivery isn't that much different. You still have people coming and picking up uh, items. It really isn't that much. The complexity around Uber has to dealing with all these different countries. So look at how much of a headache uh, the proposition in California was to Lyft and Uber. Imagine doing that over what is 80 plus countries that Uber operates in. I think that is an advantage for uh, Lyft and uh, my money would be on Lyft over Uber. So Lyft over Uber, let's say in the shorter term, in the three-year time frame, the two-year time frame, Gene, then what? You fill in the blank. I'd still, if you, uh, I guess, it would insist on owning one of these two for a three-year no, no, period. No, or, no, or, or fill in the blank. Choose, choose another company fill in the if you blank. think. Uh, yeah. Fill in the blank is uh, you got to. We just have to hit the reset button in terms of the investment thesis on this. In six months, we're going to see a rebound. There's going to be a lot of excitement about numbers going up. The stock, I believe, will go higher. Mm -hmm. And but I think that the to answer your question over the three-year, we have to see what's going to happen. We think Tesla's going to launch an app at the end of this year, a chaperone robotaxi. We won't get into what that is, but. It is, uh, I think there is more competition. Last piece is this. If you think about autonomy and removing the driver, that has been the holy grail to get leverage in these businesses. But you start to add other tech companies in the mix that are also pursuing that. Right. Then you get a race to the bottom in pricing. And I think that that is the ultimate uh, headwind about some of these other tech companies getting in. It's not that Tesla or Apple or Waymo is going to have big market share. It's that they're going to have enough to corrupt some of this pricing leverage that they've enjoyed over the last couple of years. Chaperone Robo Taxi. That sounds like a job for Guy Dami. Uh, Gene, good to see you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Gene Menster, Loop Ventures. By the way, we'll have much more on Lyft's quarter tomorrow on Squawk Box and a first on CNBC interview with the Lyft president, John Zimmer. Uh, James McDonald, final word here on Lyft, your outlook for this company and, and the notion that as more tech companies enter this business at large, the pressure increases tremendously. I respectfully disagree with the thesis that complexity uh, contracts opportunity. If we looked at a uh, situation 15 years ago, a little company called Amazon.com pivoted above and beyond books, you know, Borders and the other big bookstores stood the books. And where's Amazon's market cap? Because they took their early entry and their disruptive ability to deliver things uh, onto a whole new level. Um, and where I like Uber over Lyft in this situation uh, is their flexibility to be the delivery channel for whatever. Uh, to whomever, um, and that positions them for quite a few more revenue streams. All right. We've got a news alert coming out of Washington, so let's get to Kayla Tausche with the latest. Kayla. Melissa, we're getting official statements from the companies that were present at today's White House meeting with President Biden, the Vice President, and the Treasury Secretary to discuss the state of the economy. Those statements all call the conversation constructive and productive. But I spoke with uh, one attendee for a readout of the meeting and sort of the run of show to get you a little behind-the-scenes detail of exactly what was discussed. This person said that the president opened the meeting with a roughly 15-minute speech talking about the need to combat the virus and shore up the economy at the same 
same time that President Biden talked about the importance of jobs, 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 and bringing the economy back for those hurting most. That on stimulus, he signaled that he was open to continuing discussions with both sides of the aisle, that he wasn't rigid in his proposal and wanted to pursue something that had broad support, that he wasn't just pushing through. He said progress needs to be made on immigration, infrastructure, and closing the skills gap. And as for the messages communicated by each of the CEOs individually, I'm told Sonia Single, the CEO of Gab, said that retail workers are two-thirds women, two-thirds minority, and so she she sees up close those who proportionally are being hurt most, and they are still being hurt. Doug McMillan of Walmart was thanked for the company's participation in the vaccine rollout, and he also said that growing wages will be important, said Walmart is working on that. The Lowe's CEO talked about the hiring that his company is doing, and Jamie Dimon, the J.P. Morgan Chase CEO, talked about the need for sound policy on immigration, health care, and infrastructure, and that with good policy, the economy will grow, and that will lift the fortunes of the largest number of Americans. Finally, Melissa, of course, we know President Trump hosted many of these meetings uh, during his four years in office with CEOs from a wide variety of industries. And I asked this attendee what was different in engaging with the Biden administration from engaging with the Trump administration. Uh, And the readout was that in this meeting, the CEOs were not asked for anything in return. Melissa, back to you. Imagine that. Kayla, thank you. Kayla Tashi in Washington with the with the latest there. Um, It seems like a foregone conclusion, Tim, that stimulus is going to pass. Is that right? In terms of the markets. I think Tim is frozen because he's not blinking. I'm going to guess that he's frozen. Yep, he is. (laughs) (laughs) The not blinking thing really gives it away. Uh, Guy, tell me, is it is it a foregone conclusion in the markets that stimulus will, in fact, pass, even though the president is now hosting CEOs here to get their feedback? I believe so. I mean, it certainly appears that way in terms of the move in the bond market. Number one, the, the you know, the continued decline now in the U.S. dollar after a brief rise. Number two, and obviously the way the equity market is traded, specifically the Russell. I mean, the move in the Russell is, is outstanding. It's a bit ridiculous. I'm sure James can speak to that. But I think all those things point to the fact that the market seems to conclude that this will pass in one way, shape or form. All right, let's get back to earnings here. Twitter, we're tracking that one, too. Higher after reporting results. Let's get to Julia Borson, who's got the details. Julia. Well, Melissa, Twitter beat on the top and bottom line, though its user growth did fall short of expectations. Now, the company's key user metric, which is monetizable daily active users, that number was 192 million. That is up 5 million over the course of the quarter, though it is a million and a half less than the latest analyst consensus. The company did give some context to those numbers, though, in its letter to shareholders, saying that changes around the election, Twitter started to make people add a comment if they wanted to retweet something that did have a slight negative impact on daily users. Twitter also gave some rare insight into user trends in the current quarter, revealing that in January, the increase in absolute users was above the historical average from the last four years. So no negative impact from the banning of President Trump. The company did also address concerns about Apple's operating system change, which will make it harder for apps to target ads. Twitter writing, quote, assuming the global pandemic continues to improve and that we see modest impact from the rollout of changes associated with iOS 14, we expect total revenue to grow faster than expenses in 2021. 
how much faster will depend on our execution on our direct response roadmap and macroeconomic factors. Now, the, Melissa, I, I want to note here, the company did warn of challenging comparisons coming ahead, comparisons to the surge in users it saw in the second quarter. And Melissa, I'm sure we'll hear more in the company's earnings call that doesn't start until 6 p.m. Eastern. Yep, there's so many more questions here. Julia, thank you. Julia Borston. Um, by the way, we'll have much more on Twitter's quarter tomorrow with Twitter CFO Ned Siegel. In the meantime, let's get the trade on this. And it's interesting because, you know, President Trump was not, as I recall, <laughs> part of the bull case for, for many bulls out there for Twitter stock. And yet the concern about the banning of President Trump from the platform um, is, is great out there. James, something has to give it. It doesn't make any sense. Right. Well, the numbers do not reflect any fallout from President Trump's ban. Um, and I think we're, you know, we have to focus is there's really two key metrics. And so we mentioned one already, the average monetizable uh, daily active user. But the other one is ad revenue growth. Right. You know, you got to sell ads and have revenue growth there. Um, and as we continue to talk about the opening trades and moving back to normal, uh, I think the secret with Twitter is that their business has so much upside by going back to a normal way of life with more businesses active. Twitter has become more popular than ever. And what's happening uh, is that advertising on the digital platform is gonna continue to explode. This is one of the largest CAGR areas uh, in all of e-commerce. And I think Twitter is uniquely positioned to benefit from that. And so I wanna mention Twitter on the reopening trade as well. Um, and President Trump was a phenomenon during a period. There'll be a new phenomena and Twitter will be there to capitalize on that. CAGR, compound annual growth rate. Um, Tim, you're back with us. You're blinking, nodding. So Hi. I know you're there. Yeah, <laughs> your thoughts on Twitter here. <laughs> Uh, I have to jump in with James's emphasis on digital ad revenue growth. 31%. This was a big beat. This was, you know, it was expected to be low 20s. Um, the fact that this is if the macro story around Twitter is the tailwind of, of digital revenue growth and, and what that means in, for anybody in the media space. So, uh, agree. I think the, you know, more, uh, interesting is the validation of the stock in the after hours for a stock that was up 25 percent in, uh, you know, 32 percent in 16 days, I should say, uh, on this one into these numbers off of those lows we saw in mid-January. So um, I, I think you've got a, a really interesting story here. Uh, the MAU growth, people don't like to talk about it on the downside, but I think on the upside, 27 percent growth. I, you know, I like those numbers and I like the stock. Yeah, Guy, you don't want to talk about it at all. I mean, the focus maybe should be ad no. revenue. And the thinking is if Twitter is harsher and comes down on, on questionable content, maybe advertisers would be even more inclined to advertise because it's a safer, quote-unquote, safer platform. Yeah, and it's interesting. Even though you still see those you know, monthly average users, I think the markets look past now. I think the market, to James and Tim's point, understands that you know, 31% ad growth. I mean, that's the same ad growth as Facebook saw respectfully, and probably better than what Google sees, which is remarkable. And I do think those numbers are only going to continue to improve. And Jack Dorsey, you say what you want about the guy. He's running two of the most successful companies on the planet. And if you're a baseball fan, which I know Tim is, but you're not, Mel, there are yes. sort of foundational franchises in baseball, the Yankees, the Cardinals, Dodgers, Red Sox, Cubs, everybody else is sort of after runs. But it's same thing in, in an Internet. And I think Twitter's become one of those foundational stocks of the Internet. I think it continues to grind higher from here. There is some concern, though, that given the, the growth rates at Twitter recently, that maybe Snap and Pinterest are gaining share. Steve Grosso, do you share those concerns? Where do you go for growth? 
I, yeah, I do. I do. I would, I would say, see, the problem with Snap is that it's been so, it's performed or outperformed so aggressively much over Twitter that valuation becomes, to, becomes the concern. When you look at the digital ad market globally, Twitter is still a, 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 an infinitesimal percentage of that. So I'm not a bull on Twitter. The all-time high is 74 back in 2013. So if you, I think it has a shot at trying to make it to that level. But user growth, and I, and I hear what Guy's saying, user growth is the holy grail in this. And they just can't seem to grow it as fast as advertisers would like them to. And now they're going to ha- have a subscription model. So you can't grow the user base, but you're going to charge for it now. I don't, I don't know. Longer term, I'm a seller of Twitter. All right. We've got more breaking news out of Washington. Let's get to Eamon Javers. Eamon. Yeah, that's right. The impeachment trial of former President Donald Trump has just cleared its first hurdle. The vote was 56 to 44. And what that means is that the Senate has decided it is, in fact, constitutional to hold an impeachment trial of a former president of the United States. The Senate uh, held hearings or, or heard from both sides, the Trump lawyers and the impeachment managers, on this question of whether or not a former president could be tried for an impeachment that happened while he was president. Trump's lawyers argued it's simply unconstitutional to do that, that the the president can't be removed from office if he's no longer president anymore. So therefore, this whole uh, trial is a legal nullity. The impeachment managers, however, Democrats, argued that, in fact, it is constitutional because one of the remedies in the Constitution is to bar that former official from any future federal office. And because that still applies to the president, they say this trial is constitutional. They got six Republicans to cross the aisle and vote with the Democrats. So the final vote, 56-44, does allow the trial to now move forward. Uh, The question, though, is would there, in any scenario, be enough Republicans to cross the aisle to vote to convict uh, the former president, Donald Trump? And given that just six crossed the aisle here on this vote today, uh, and they'll need 17 to do that in order to convict him, uh, it doesn't look like the impeachment managers are going to be able to get there. But they have promised that they have some new secret evidence here that they're going to unveil during the course of this uh, impeachment trial, which will unfold over the coming days. Uh, They say they are optimistic that that evidence, whatever it is, and they won't say what, uh, will be enough to convince some of those reluctant Republicans to cross the aisle, vote with Democrats, and convict President Trump. Seems, Seems unlikely as of right now, Melissa, but that's where we stand. All right. Eamon, thank you. Eamon Javers in Washington. Coming up, the earnings keep rolling in. Cisco on the move after reporting results. The company's conference call is now underway. We will tell you how our traders are playing this name, which is down 5% after hours. Plus, trading the semi-squeeze, more companies sounding the alarm over a global chip shortage. will break down the winners and losers. And later, the ultimate reopening play. What you can expect from MGM when it reports earnings tomorrow. You've got your setup when Fast Money returns. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. 
Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story, asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got another earnings alert on Cisco. Shares are sinking after the company's latest results. Conference calls underway. Josh Lipton's got the details. Josh. So, Melissa, remember heading into this report, the stock had actually rallied about 30 percent over the last three months, though uh, still up just fractionally over the past 12 months. Now lower here, though, in the after hours. Cisco beating on the bottom. Revenue basically in line for Q3. Looking ahead, EPS guidance in line, calling for revenue growth of 3 5.5 to 5.5%. Street was closer to 3% on the call. Cisco CEO Chuck Robbins saying this was strong performance, encouraging signs, he said, of strength across the business. Though there is weakness out there saying that the enterprise market is still soft. He remains, though, he said, cautiously optimistic about the IT spending environment. Looking ahead. Also checked in, by the way, with Amit Daryanani over at Evercore ISI. Good to see sales going in the right direction, he says, meaning January quarter was flat, but guidance implies 4% growth, but EPS kinds just in line, as we mentioned. Ahmed does have a buy on the name, though. I asked him why. As people return to work and companies spend more on networking infrastructure, Cisco will benefit, he says. Melissa, back to you. Josh, um, do they say anything about full year? I'm just trying to sort of extrapolate whether an inline third quarter means that maybe there's a shortfall in the fourth given the beat in the second. There was a lot of questions on the call about that EPS mm-hmm. guidance, I'll tell you, for Q3. Um, what analysts were asking there is, listen, there's not a whole lot of leverage. What executives countered was that there are some puts and takes there the street needs to keep in mind. An extra week in the quarter, they said, which means additional revenue, but also additional spend. And weakness of the dollar, they said, is having an impact. But you can see the shares sharply lower here in the after hours, Melissa. All right, Josh, thanks. Josh Lifton. Guy Dami, what's, what's with this quarter? Why is the stock down, you think? No, I mean, it's interesting. Strong quarter. It's back to the baseball analogy. Some teams win 81 games, and they think they had a great year. Other teams think it's a miserable year. Cisco won 81 games in a 162-game season and think they had a great quarter. I don't think it's a great quarter. You have 4% revenue growth. It's had a huge run off those double bottoms that we've talked about. Actually, 48.5, where I think it traded today, is the same high we made back in February. There's just nothing to get excited about here. And if you're trading the stock, I think there's a good likelihood it trades back down to $40, Mel. Yeah, Steve? Yeah, so I agree. I I saw that same double top from back in February. But you have to remember, Cisco is trying to work from corporate accounts and government contracts to subscriptions and software. So they do services about $13 billion, $36 billion in hardware. I don't think we're getting back to that level. Think about this, Melissa. Before the pandemic, Cisco had a huge, if I look across the floor, there used to be big monstrosities of cameras. They were the original Zoom on the floor and used to have to have corporate, you know, going back and forth with video conferencing. They missed the boat on that. They're a hardware company at at their core. I don't think they can pivot just right. And once we get back to the restarting the economy, it's not going to be about hardware anymore. 
companies have workarounds, Cisco is left out in the cold. I'm a, I'm a seller of Cisco. All right. We're just getting started here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. The great growing chip shortage. Companies from GM to Sony can't get the supplies they need. What that means for the industry and the names that are best poised to fill the gap. Plus, seeing green. The news that's got shares of canopy growth and the rest of the cannabis industry lighting up again today. We've got that and a lot more when Fast Money returns. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Welcome back to Fast Money. It's a red alert for the chip sector. A growing number of companies sounding the alarm over a global chip shortage. Names like Ford, GM, Volkswagen cutting back production due to a semi-squeeze. While Sony says the chip shortage is making production of its PlayStation consoles difficult. So what does a chip crunch mean for the semiconductor stocks? Let's bring in Jeffrey's tech sector specialist, Jared Weisfeld. Jared, great to see you. Thanks for having me back again. How should we think about this chip shortage? Should we think about it as, as meaning a giant and deep backlog for these companies, or is there an element of demand destruction the longer the squeeze goes on? I think it's more of the former than anything else. I mean, when you think about what just happened here over the last 12 months, you had executives that were preparing for a crisis and didn't add the appropriate supply, and demand rebounded at a far greater than expected rate. And what you're having now is lean inventories across the board and capacity utilizations that are running at 100% plus in some cases, uh, just trying to eke as much capacity out as possible. And that's really leading into shortages that are acute across the board. Automotive is certainly the most pronounced, but it's leading into uh, shortages across the entire ecosystem from graphics cores to uh, to basically everything that touches end devices. So it's uh, it's certainly pretty severe, but you know, I, I think this is more of just a shift from a demand perspective as opposed to uh, demand destruction. So how should we think about who benefits the most? And, and do we think that maybe, you know, these chips are already under contract and so there's no pricing power, there's no additional gain for these chip companies, or is there? So I think it depends on who we're talking about. So uh, if you take a look at Microchip, which I think is a great example in terms of what exactly is going on right here, because it's a diverse company that touches so many customers, 100,000 plus customers globally, they talked about something last week called the Preferred Supplier Program. They are requiring 12 months of visibility in some cases with non-cancelable orders uh, because they really want to make sure that demand is there to increase that kind of visibility and get those commitments from those customers. So I think it's uh, it's ultimately going to turn out to be a, a positive thing for the industry in terms of increased visibility. Uh, you have longer lead times that are stretching, and right now you're putting in the orders in place that are that are actually existing. Uh, so ultimately, I think it's a positive. Um, and when you think about just the broader industry, if you control your own destiny, you're in a better position. So I think a lot of folks are looking to Texas Instruments, for instance, because they are an IDM. They're an integrated device manufacturer. These Texas Instruments was the only one that ran their FAPs hot during the downturn at 100% utilization rates, and they built this inventory because they saw what happened in the great financial crisis. You want to make sure that you have the inventory on the other side. Jared, I'm focused on 
the EV uh, uh, with the uh, electric vehicles with the automobile companies. It, that's going to obviously increase the demand for uh, semiconductors and chips. A name that we don't talk about a lot, NXPI and another one on semiconductor. NXPI holds 11 percent of the marketplace. Is that a place to uh, focus attention as well? Yeah, I mean, I think NXPI is a great example. I mean, NXPI holds market-leading positions with respect to LiDAR, 77 gigahertz radars. They are really uh, viewed as an interesting play on EV. And look at what they said on their earnings call. I think the exact quote from the CEO was, the automotive supply chain is empty. So with NXPI, you get the benefit of not only having the cyclical recovery with respect to the automotive restock, but then on the other side of that, you have all of that secular goodness that you're talking about with respect to EV. And same thing for OnSemi. OnSemi has been transforming the company over the years. They just brought in a CEO who is highly regarded. He sold his last company, obviously, um, uh, Cypher Semiconductor to, uh, to Infineon. Uh, and, he's been ter- and he basically laid out a vision to go ahead and uh, prune the product portfolio longer term and focus on those secular growth drivers such as automotive and EV. So I think those are two great examples in terms of companies that are levered to those themes. Jared, thanks so much for helping us make sense of this. We appreciate it. Jared Weisfeld of Jefferies. Um, we mentioned NXPI. Jared mentioned the conference call. Infin- Infineon had very similar commentary on its conference call about the shortage here. Um, Tim, how do you think about this, and, and what's your play here? You know, I, the good and the bad of this seems to be around Taiwan Semi or TSN or, you know, one of the biggest weightings in the Emerging Markets Index, too, because I, I think over-reliance on TSM has left us in in this place where we have a chip shortage. And again, this is a company uh, that now has, you know, 3 to 4 percent of their chip sales going to auto uh, and 51 percent to smartphones because it's been a lot more interesting, but there's been a lot higher growth, but it's left uh, the industry overly reliant in a place where I, I think um, there hasn't been as much focus because it hasn't been as interesting. So, um, but you know, in terms of the trade, I, I, you know, first of all, overall, semiconductors, SMH at 245, all-time highs, uh, continue to be a leader of this market, and I wouldn't get too far away right there. All right, we're going to hear a lot more probably on this chip shortage tomorrow. When General Motors reports more on that and other key elements to watch in that report, head on over to CNBC.com/pro. Coming up, Robinhood takes on the lawmakers, the company ramping up lobbying efforts ahead of a key hearing later this month. We'll break down the details and later the jackpot trade, what you can expect from MGM when it reports tomorrow. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. We're following a developing story on Robinhood. CNBC.com is reporting the company is ramping up lobbying efforts ahead of congressional hearings later this month. Let's get to Kate Rooney with the details. Kate. Hey, Melissa. Robinhood has registered its first in-house lobbyists in D.C., and it's already preparing to target a few bills that, if passed, could weigh on the trading startup's business model. Robinhood's new personnel includes a former senior staffer on the Senate Banking Committee, and a former chief of staff for SEC chair Jay Clayton. Robinhood's uh, planning to target at least three pieces of legislation from what we've seen. One of those is called the Wall Street Tax Act of 2019. That would impose a 0.1% tax on certain transactions, so that could include stock trading and options, for example. These trading taxes have been floated as really a way to dampen some of the short-term buying and selling that we've seen in, in recent weeks. And less trading, of course, could weigh on profits at Robinhood and some other major brokerage firms. 
Robinhood did decline to comment on these lobbying plans. Melissa, back to you. So, Kate, presumably the transaction tax would be paid by the trader as opposed to absorbed by Robinhood. I mean, either way, there's an impact on his business. We think so. So it's called an excise tax. Right. We haven't seen yet. You know, it's not far enough along, but theoretically it would be paid by the trader and not Robinhood. Yeah. And in that case, that could really dampen uh, that on the consumer side. And if it were paid by Robinhood, you, you know, they might subsidize that tax. We right. know that they've raised a ton of money in the past year. Okay. Either way, not good for Robinhood. Kate, thank you. Kate Rooney. Um, Guy Dami, we've certainly seen these sorts of efforts around the world. In China, they, they I don't want to say regularly, but it's not unusual for them to, to impose this uh, during hot times, you know, amongst retail trading frenzies, excise taxes. Yeah, but what does it mean, you know, potentially for their IPO when they go public? Will there still be the demand? And the short answer is probably yes. I think the mar- given the environment that we find ourselves in, just my opinion, I think the market's going to look past most of this, and it's probably going to be an extraordinarily successful IPO if and when it happens. So I think they've gotten through the worst of the headline risk they saw a couple weeks ago that we talked about extensively. This is obviously a bit of a headwind again, but I do think the markets will look past all of this and say, where's the growth going to be over the next three to five years? And I think they'll find it in Robinhood. By the way, anybody who champions uh, the Reddit rebellion in terms of democratizing trading, you're not helping this little guy out if you're imposing an excise tax on trades that they do, James. So there's a certain irony involved here in, in Congress taking this matter up. Right. And there's a paradox within this business model as well. You know, the essence of capitalism is stock investment and to democratize it, to provide equal access to the masses is somewhat of a confusing paradox. But like I said uh, on previous segments on this topic, regulators will get their arms around it. The problems that Robin had have are problems that any business would want. Incredible growth, growth and sales and interest and activity. I think the CEO you had on uh, yesterday, he mentioned that they've never been the number one downloaded app on the App Store in history. Uh, and I think they got consecutive days with that. And so, um, yeah, you know, saddle up and, you know, get your lobbyists and, uh, you know, get ready for what they might have, uh, you know, a monopoly on this is based on their popularity. All right. Coming up, rolling the dice on MGM. We'll tell you how options traders are betting on that name into earnings. And all month long, CNBC is celebrating Black History Month by honoring some of our own contributors. Here's CNBC contributor Robert Johnson on on his defining career moment. Black Entertainment Television in 1991 became the first African-American company publicly traded on the New York Stock Exchange. And my team and I rang the bell signifying that we were a publicly traded company participating in the U.S. economy. The fact that we were first The fact that we symbolize what black Americans can do if given an opportunity was one of the proudest days of my life in business. Welcome back to Fast Money. Canada's pot stocks blazing higher today. Tilray soaring almost 40 percent after striking a deal to distribute medical cannabis in the U.K., Meanwhile, canopy growth rallying after saying it expects to be profitable by 2022. Follow through, too. Here in the U.S., Green Thumb, Cresco, Cureleaf, all pushing higher in today's session. And, Tim, you're remarking on today's uh, midday call. Pot stocks are on fire. They continue to be on fire. 
There, there's multiple dynamics at work here, and we've talked about them on this show. Uh, look, the story in Canada is is that companies like like Canopy Growth are becoming uh, closer to profitability and certainly very well run and have an eye on the U.S. and have a growing market share. Uh, the U.K. news on Tilray is important, but but the story really is about the United States. And and if you think about the the legislative path um, and and what happened on the Georgia runoff, but uh, comments by by Chuck Schumer very recently that that basically gives you a, a, a blueprint for what an omnibus bill could look like in the United States that would actually allow these companies to list on U.S. exchanges. The, the important part about this trade right now, and we talk about this with, with Reddit and, and you know, with short squeezes, and some of it's just all about flows. And, and so for the investor in the U.S. right now, you're getting in ahead of large institutions. Green Thumb today with a $100 million registered SEC uh, offering to a large institution is very good news and a very good sign of where this is going. And the market picked up on that. Yeah. Grasso? Yeah, so the Safe Banking Act is going to get a vote probably in the next six months in the House, in the Senate. And that w- that's pivotal. Think about this. Imagine a business, no access to a bank in the state that they're uh, operating in. So if it's legal in that state, they'll have access to banks. It's huge for the industry. All right. Still ahead, we're gearing up for MGM earnings. The stock has been on a roll this year. Ha ha, roll. <laughs> Options traders are betting on a big jackpot when a report to trade when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of MGM moving higher as the company gears up for earnings. Let's get to Mike Coe with the setup from the options pits. Mike. Yeah, MGM hit over $36 today. That's more than a six-fold increase off of the March lows, somewhat unbelievably. And it saw two times as many calls trading as average today. Right now, the options market is implying a move of about 6.8% higher or lower compared to 4.8% over the last eight quarters. And all of that activity seems to be bullish. Options traders continue to press their bullish bets here. It's the Feb 36 strike calls that we're trading. Those were the most active ones. Obviously, options traders are expecting that the stock is going to be higher a week from Friday following that earnings result. All right. Thanks for that, Mike. Mike Coe, for more options action, be sure to tune into the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Up next, final trades. Time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Tim Seymour. Speaking of companies with free cash flow, Schlumberger and and a recovery in oil services that I think with the price of oil is worth following. Steve Grasso. So Virgin Galactic was pulled into this highly shorted stocks that rallied and and had the short covering rally. It's up 156 percent since January 1st. Their their test flight window opens up February 13th. I'm looking for 15 percent to the upside very quickly above 62. James McDonald. I've got something new and owed to my friends in Houston, especially Mario Lara, who's a huge fan of yours, Mel. Brookfield Renewable Partners. They own and operate the largest portfolio of renewable assets. They've got $3.5 billion of liquidity, no debt, and 11% growth over the next several years in any condition, especially a bear market. Guy Adami. Clearly a misguided fan. Obviously. (laughs) Joaquin Martin (laughs) off the mats here. LMT. All right. Thanks for watching Fast. See you back here tomorrow at 5 for more. Meantime, don't go anywhere. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. 
Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts.